Hello everyone, today is Sunday, March 14th, and if we have a climate change crisis, then this is the doubt. In the mid-1990s, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change definitively linked global warming to a discernible human influence on the global climate. Over the last two and a half decades, climate scientists have been able to attribute specific observable evidence that is clear. The main cause of climate change is burning fossil fuels, such as oil, gas, and coal. When burned, fossil fuels release carbon dioxide into the air causing the planet to heat up. And yet, in the last few years, policymakers have not been able to agree on the appropriate path forward. In 2018, a report done by the same UN panel on climate change found that in order to prevent sea levels from rising, rises in wildfires, severe storms, droughts, and other extreme weather events that threaten human life, we must prevent global temperatures from increasing 1.5 degrees Celsius. On the track that we are on right now at this very moment, global temperatures are set to increase well above 2 degrees Celsius, causing mass devastation and animal extinction. This is where policies like the Paris Agreement and the Green New Deal come into play. One of the largest advocates of the Green New Deal happens to be a youth-led organization called the Sunrise Movement. So, what exactly is the Green New Deal? How and who exactly does this resolution hope to help? Today I speak with Danny Robles and Andrea Canizares Fernandez from the Sunrise Movement to answer all of our climate questions. So Andrea and Danny, how about you guys start and just tell me a little bit about yourselves and, and what you guys are working on. Yeah, thank you so much, Jalen. Um, so uh, this is Danny. I'm a DACA uh, recipient, so that kind of started my whole path forward into getting involved into a bit of progressive uh, activism, um, especially, you know, with the Trump administration kind of playing the DACA card to hold us hostage on many of his plans. And through that um, experience and getting involved in the activism world, uh, I came across Sunrise uh, thanks to one, an article that I read on The Intercept when uh, Nancy Pelosi's office got taken over by AOC and members of the Justice Democrats um, and Sunrise Movement, and just seeing their ideas really called me. So I'm from Chicago, and uh, I had the opportunity to start uh, looking at the leadership here in Chicago to identify some of the leaders that I really wanted to get behind in the aftermath of the 2018 election to make sure that we had more progressive-minded leaders in Congress um, in 2020. And one of those leaders uh, was uh, Marie Newman here in the Southwest side of Chicago. And I got to meet her at a Sunrise Movement town hall where I got to hear about uh, Sunrise's theory of change, especially as it pertained to the intersectionality of the issue of climate change. You know, realizing that to solve, to really have a, a holistic view of how we're going to move forward with climate change, we really have to tackle the issues of social and racial inequality, you know, as it's it's been part of our history of America for such a long time. And 
you know, right now we are at the precipice of existential crisis with climate change. And, you know, if we don't tackle those issues as well, like the gaps in the wealth attainment and racial disparities are just going to increase because the system that is currently in place just holds the status quo of corporate leaders and corporate-minded people um, in place and doesn't really uh, address the needs for the community. So the fact that Sunrise is focused on getting that eyesight towards the youth of America helps us like plan because we're, we're actually two generations of of people who have, you know, experienced such deep inequalities um, and we're, we're facing um, this issue together that, you know, it's really going to take our generation to start fixing the problems that the generation before us kind of put in place for us. So that's a little bit about me and I'm going to turn it over to Andrea. Great. Uh, yes, I sign off on everything that Danny just said. Um, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'm Andrea. I have a slightly different uh, story, um, which I always think is fun to see how so many different people can come together in the same organizing space. But my uh, parents are from Quito, Ecuador, and they immigrated here to the U.S. and had my brother and I, so I'm first generation. Uh, I grew up in a lot of places, but I currently live in Chicago, Illinois. I actually come from more of a theater and performing arts background, um, which is something that I was pursuing up until the pandemic. And obviously I had my own existential crisis of not being able to pursue- Like all of us. <laughs> like all of us, um, you know, all the actors and the performing artists got hit really hard. Everything was frozen we didn't really know what to do. And after, you know, step one had the existential crisis, step 10 maybe was to be like, okay, what else is important to me? And I've always deeply cared about climate change and the environment. And I had this thought that you couldn't do anything about it unless you were a lawyer or something. And I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. And so I felt a little bit um, like I was at stagnated in that way. But finally, I started asking around friends of my age, like, what, how are you getting involved? How can I get involved? And that's when I found out about Sunrise Movement. And when I heard about it, uh, it felt a little bit like, oh my gosh, there are so many people my age who care just as much as I do, who are feel just as hopeless as I do and are doing something about it and making a difference, making tangible change. Um, and I was sold right at the beginning. I started volunteering and I got caught up in the whole thing. I definitely uh, drank the Kool-Aid <laughs> um, and I care so much about uh, what Sunrise stands for, not just climate action, but you know, climate justice is racial justice, is um, economic justice, and it's all intersectional and you can't address one without the other. And on a personal level, uh, I have found um, my kind of cultural, racial, ethnic identity crises that I've been dealing with this year to kind of fit in nicely into the organizing that I do with uh, Sunrise Movement in this group, I guess the constituency, uh, Somo Sunrise, um, where I have found community with other Latina organizers who are also uh, asking the same questions. Um, and we are in community together 
feeling a little bit less hopeless um, as we become friends and organize uh, towards a greater goal. I love that. Um, and I think one of the really more amazing things is this is like a youth-led kind of you know, movement and it's so important right now. We keep hearing like these timelines of, oh, we have 12 years to kind of get this right. We have 10 years to get this right. And I feel like uh, it keeps shortening and shortening. And in the most layman of terms, can one of you describe to our listeners today what exactly is climate change? Okay, the thing is, is that there's no quick and easy answer. I would say in my... Well, actually, how about this? How about I give you what I believe climate change is? And perhaps you guys can correct me if I'm way off the mark. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you try? <laughs> and we'll tell you if right. you're right or wrong. <laughs> okay, so I actually had a conversation with my mom uh, about this. And she was like, hey, you know what? I keep hearing this thing about climate change. Break it down for me. In my past, I've worked kind of like as a political organizer, an activist, things like that. And I... I deal with a huge purview of issues and climate change was not like my strongest, you know, issues. So I, I tried to tell her over the course of, you know, the last few centuries, humans have created toxins and um, chemicals and it's been going into our atmosphere and it's kind of taken our world off balance, off its natural balance. And it's contributing to crazy hurricanes that we're seeing and um, you know melting icebergs and ice caps and it's disrupting the the weather and um, if we keep doing that if we don't make a change we're going to see such radical changes uh, not just meteorologically but um, you know like farming uh, and in, in the climate and humans are not going to survive because it's going to really really disrupt just like a lot of our like lifestyle things, um, but also animals. And we're gonna keep seeing um, crazy events similar to like what we've just seen in Texas, where, um, you know, they're having snow and we're, you know, going down to zero degrees, which is like insane. We're gonna continue to see crazy hurricanes like Maria and Irma uh, that hit Puerto Rico so bad. We're gonna continue to see floods and the ocean's going to continue to rise and i kind of want to stop there because i feel like <laughs> i'm hitting my limit <laughs> yeah 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 okay i would say a plus oh oh wow okay cool <laughs> the reason why i say a plus is because i feel like often when you're thinking about climate change people are always like oh it's uh the temperatures are rising or the sea levels are rising or I don't know, the polar bears are dying. And I really love that you started with kind of the origins of how it happened because to me, climate change, it's that the environment is changing, but it's also a conversation about how did we get there? Um, it did I think that's a really key component, you know, for folks to understand this is kind of like human created and it's going to take a human response. We can't just like, leave it up to the earth and like, oh, it'll figure it out. No, that's, that's actually not it. 
Right, right, exactly. And if you boil it down to A to B, it's that humans started overusing resources and those resources are now depleting and it's not sustainable. And it's not like, oh, humans did these things and then all of a sudden, randomly, B started happening. Uh, it's like, no, A happened, right. that led to B. They're directly correlated. Right. And I, I think uh, another very big point to kind of like bring into this whole deal is really calling out why why did it happen, right? Like, and why it has it consistently happened. I think one of the things that Sunrise is really good at like diving into is understanding like the history of the climate crisis as it pertains to like the fossil fuel industry. Um, and I think trying to, trying to explain that in a layman's term, like it's just very easy to just let people know that executives from like Exxon and Shell, they, they knew that their products and that their industry was contributing to the change in the atmosphere since the 1980s. But, you know, they, they're trying to turn a profit. And I think that's one of the things that like we, we continuously to see in America is that people put profit over people. And because we're seeing this kind of mentality for such a long time, we're not really taking care of the people that really need to be taken care of. They've, they've put a lot of money to think tanks and um, strategies to dissuade the public from believing climate change is real. Changing the name originally was called global warming and now it's changed to climate change, which I think it's a more a, more, a better term for what we're seeing because you know we are going to see these drastic changes in our weather patterns because of um, the CO2 emissions that have been placed into our atmosphere, uh, kind of hurting the weather patterns, the jet stream patterns. And part of the reason why we saw snow in Texas was the Arctic zone was just completely devastated. And we're seeing those cold streams heading down to southern parts of our country. So um, very much like talking about who are the perpetrators in this is part of like the big conversation that we need to have. Yeah, and just to quickly throw in, you know, using fossil fuels is such a great example and it's such a big one too, but it's, it, that's not the only thing, you know, it's companies like the fossil fuel executives promoting plastics, for example, which now are mountains in our oceans. It's food insecurity, uh, the fashion industry, for example. It's everything the, of the corporations, the people on top trying to profit over sustainability, over thinking about how this would end up for future generations. And it's catching up to us now. And I kind of want to pick up this one point before we go into kind of like some of the policy things that we've seen in, in these two administrations, one that we're just leaving and one that we're just getting into. But there's like a racial justice element to it, meaning that some of you know the folks, uh, whether minorities or in lower economic areas, they're seeing kind of like the brunt force of climate change maybe because resources haven't been invested in their communities, um, you know, or what have you. Yeah, definitely. I think you hit a very, um, you said it very eloquently. A lot of communities, especially Black, Brown, Indigenous communities are underserved uh, and they're also underrepresented. Um, and it's one of the big issues that, you know, over the last 
four to six years, we've, we've definitely noticed that um, the representation that these communities have at the highest level don't, don't serve them well. And I think that's part of the change that we're seeing with this new administration is that, you know, we, we have noticed that we need more black, brown and indigenous people uh, representing um, those communities in Congress. Um, and 2018 kind of marked the, the most diverse batch of uh, representatives in the House of, of Representatives. And a lot of that had to do with this momentum of understanding that the racial inequities that exist are part of the status quo that we, we've had uh, people representing these communities without really holding uh, the experiences or understanding what those experiences are in those communities. Um, oftentimes, you know, we talk about the racial injustice that has been perpetrated in America since its inception. Um, and it's something that we, we still haven't quite figured out. And um, the last couple of years of having these conversations at the forefront of our society are really opening up a lot of people's eyes that these issues are still very much prevalent. And as we're moving towards destabilizing weather patterns, those communities are already underserved in normal times. So when it comes down to preparedness for uh, climate disasters or evacuation, there, is, there hasn't been a lot done in, in these communities to make sure that have the systems in place. I mean, we saw that as early on in 2006 with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. I was just about to bring this up, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can continue on. You're probably way more informed than I am, so I'm just actually going to pull back there. <laughs> you're uh, you're all good, uh, but yeah, you know those those are the kind of things that we're we're seeing at uh, different city uh, levels, um, and oftentimes the, these systems are ingrained at at, at the uh, establishment level of the city governments, and I think part of what Sunrise Movement is about is, uh, you know, taking the approach at all different layers of government, you know, there is the national movement to kind of like have these conversations to tackle stuff in DC, but the bigger piece is finding those people in your community to help drive these messages, collaborate with other organizations that are already doing some of the work on racial justice and uh, social economic justice and really build these coalition, coalitions and partnerships to tackle the issues at like local uh, level that will actually have bigger impact in the long run. Yeah, I was just gonna throw in uh, a kind of an example. Okay, let's throw out air pollution. Air pollution is in the air, you know, theoretically it affects everyone. And so you could think, oh, climate change doesn't have anything to do with racial and economic inequality. But if you kind of zoom in on where the pollution is affecting communities the most, it's in low income communities, it's in black and brown communities. And the, when you think about where the factories are located, it's the people who have the money who are most likely white Anglo-American who can say, you know, not in my backyard, I don't want that factory in my neighborhood. And so then the uh, machines and the buildings, they go into the communities that don't have the uh, political prowess or the voice or the money to say that shouldn't be there. Um, and so it goes there. And then the 
people who, first of all, it's the people who work there who need that money, um, who don't make um, minimum wage or barely make minimum wage, get the most air pollution um, and they're the most affected. And so that's how it's inextricably linked. The, the people, yes, climate change affects everyone. Yes, air pollution affects everyone, but it affects the people who are closest to it. Um, mo and most often the people closest to it are uh, people who don't make much money, are uh, low income working class families, are people who have disproportionately been affected by the oppressive systems of this society, which are black, brown and indigenous folks. I actually think that dovetails really nicely with the point I was just about to bring up, so I'm happy you jumped right in. Um, because I feel like when folks hear uh, social justice, economic justice, racial justice, I think folks tend to think, oh, it's, it means the government is now trying to give folks something for free. Well, that's, that's actually not the point. We're actually trying to level the playing field so that, you know, folks who can afford to leave these, you know, more polluted area, you know, good for them. But what about the folks we leave behind or who are left behind? We will actually want to make sure that uh, we have clean air for everyone, not just for the folks who um, can't afford to, to leave it behind. And so, uh, you know, environmental justice or racial justice is not about giving, you know, something free to someone, but rather making everything more equal, like having a, a level playing field or clean air for everyone. Um, so thank you, Andrea, for helping me uh, lead into that. <laughs> Yeah, I would say saying like, oh, they're just getting X, Y, Z for free right. in this situation is kind of like um, it taking someone's toy, using the toy for years, banging on the toy, and then saying like, oh, if I give you back this toy, like you're just taking something from me for free. It's like, no, this toy belonged to them in the first place, and we abused and used that toy for years. Yeah. And I feel like maybe this is a good kind of place to pivot into some of the policy and some of the changes that uh, we hope to see in um, the Biden administration. So we'll be right back. Registering voters is hard work. The Democratic Voter Project is now selling shirts where you can register a new voter by scanning a QR code directly on the shirt. With this shirt, you can now register a voter anytime, anywhere. But that's not all. With every t-shirt purchased, you plant five trees. Purchase a shirt now at demvp.org shirt. So when it comes to fighting uh, climate change, uh, we saw some really, really incredible efforts by and probably not as ambitious as we would like from the Obama administration, probably the you know keystone of, of the climate policy during those years was the Paris Agreement, where the entire globe decided, yes, we are going to tackle this uh, together. We're going to write in the agreement and lock us into you know lowering temperatures, lowering our uh, carbon emissions, and what have you. Then we go into the Trump administration, and one of the first things they do is withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement. And the president, the former president, feels really good to say that, 
uh, the former president, uh, he, he says something along the lines of, I represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not the citizens of Paris. And this is going to hurt American business, and um, it's going to be too big of a burden for, for us, and you know, we're withdrawing. I'm actually from Pittsburgh, uh, so <laughs> I, I um, know Mr. Former President. Uh, I actually was down for that agreement. Uh, so we saw that, and how far back did this past administration take us in our fight uh, against climate change? I think that's a hard number to contextualize. I, I, th- I think the bigger question in this is the fact that this past president has been such a like contrasting figure in trying to like come up with a solid truth in, in America, right? I think one of the challenges that we saw with President Trump was that he was able to mobilize a vast portion of Americans to towards his cause. And because of that, you know, I think one of the things that we're seeing is that there is a bit of two truths happening in America, where one of uh, America is very much grounded in following the word of scientists and trying to figure out how to move society forward with those mentalities. And then the other side is more interested in conspiracy theories and how like everything kind of aligns with that. And I think I think when we're talking about pulling us back, that might be one of the things that will really be dependent because I think part of the struggle is just normalizing that the the changes that we need uh, with climate change, there are going to be very like deep and radical changes. Like we have to completely think about transitioning transportation and infrastructure and kind of revisioning how those mechanisms play with America. And it feels like a very monumental task, but it's, it's a task that's already been done in America when faced with existential crises. Like we think back to World War II when you know we had a bigger existential crisis uh, happening across the country or the world where, where like several nations were trying to basically uh, take over. Um, you know, this, this crisis is something that we created ourselves and it's something that's gonna take the entire world to uh, get behind to really tackle. And I think as we're thinking about that here in America, we need to kind of reimagine uh, these systems of transportation and infrastructure to make sure that we're addressing first those polluters. And then the other piece is also thinking through, while we're thinking through these systems, we can also think about education and healthcare and how these systems play into uh, the overall piece of society. Um, it's a whole re-envisioning of what society can be. And it's why like we keep talking about like we have X amount of time. Like one of the things that we're very much cognizant is that it is gonna take a bit of time to get people moving in that direction. It's, it's a lot of these tough conversations, one-on-one conversations with our family members, but also like one-on-one conversations with community members to get them to realize that it, it's gonna take everyone to, to move the, the ball in the right direction to get climate change under control. I I think it's kind of funny when we hear from um, some politicians when they say, oh, this is too big of a burden. This is, you know, this is gonna be really, really damaging to our economy. Well, it was actually a really great effort to destroy the climate. (laughs) So to repair it is going to take a really great effort as well. Um, It's, 
you know, it's really, it's weird uh, that folks could not see past their own lifetimes that, um, you know, there has to be an earth <laughs> for the next group of humans that come around. And for you to say, no, no, this is really going to cost us billions or this is really going to put a lot of people out of work or this is really going to disrupt our way of life. Uh, well, th that's what people are going through right now across the world. And that's the thing is that it's not just going to affect future generations. It's already affecting people now and has been affecting people right, exactly. for years. It's just not the people with megaphones. And thinking, like you said, about the Trump administration, in a lot of ways, it was a lot of symbolic losses. But I would say that, you know, we've known about these issues for a long time. And the administrations before, it still wasn't what we needed. It was still business as usual or small incremental changes. And like Danny was saying, we need, if small incremental changes continue happening, we will lose. This, this isn't a battle, you know, that you can win with small incremental changes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it was an issue before Trump came into office, I guess is the point. Sure. And, you know, it's going to be an issue after Biden and after the next administration and the next administration. We're not going to fix this in, you know, 48 years. This is going to be a fight that, um, you know, probably our kids and our grandkids are going to have to continue as well. And so it, it kind of behooves us to make that down payment now. Imagine if we don't, the changes and, and the disruption that's going to have to happen in, in the earth in the future. It's, it's actually kind of frightening to think of, um, you know, major cities like Miami and New York and, you know, any kind of like coastal city being uninhabitable because the sea levels have risen so much uh, that you just cannot live there. Or think about uh, the farmlands in, in the center of the country. If the climate keeps getting hotter and hotter, where their growing season becomes shorter and shorter. This, it's, it's almost so, uh, it's so clear that um, to kind of reject it, I don't know what time or dimension or like place <laughs> that you would have to be in to be um, to be so blind to that. Okay, let's pivot a little bit into uh, the Biden administration and let's talk a little bit about what they're doing and what you're kind of hopeful for and maybe what you would like to see them, you know, where you would like to see them go further. Yeah, I think, you know, one, one of the things that we're hopeful with the Biden administration is that, you know, he's actually taking uh, things seriously and really heeding the, the word of people on the ground. I think a great way to kind of just visualize that is, you know, when campaign season started for president, you know, it wasn't like climate change wasn't part of his vocabulary. It wasn't part of what he was all about. And, you know, as campaign season wore on and Sunrise really put a lot of effort to make sure that climate change was at the forefront of the conversation with the presidential, with the, all, all the debates, right? Presidential debates, we wanna make sure that it got brought up to the forefront. And I think those continuous conversations really highlighted for him that this is a thing that a lot of people in America are really cognizant of. And I think it just goes to show the kind of leader he is, that he's not the kind of leader that says like, 
it's my way or the highway. It's like, no, I'm going to bring in the people to do this stuff. And, you know, he did bring people from uh, Sunrise Movement to kind of draft some of his policies. There, there was definitely a lot more that could be done, especially as it pertains to, you know, the racial and social intersection. Uh, you know, also realizing that Biden for us has been that establishment candidate who has those deep ties with corporations. So at times it feels like he's kind of complicit in in keeping some of that status quo moving. So he's not the full leader that we wanted, but he's the leader we have now. And he's the leader that we can push and uh, prod to make sure that things get done. I think for us, uh, it's realizing that we got to be pragmatic that he doesn't have um, the full power as an executive member to completely change the conversation. You know, we're, we live in a country where the legislative branch also needs to be part of this conversation as well. And um, I think for us within Sunrise, we're very much cognizant that, you know, we're going to get some wins with Biden. We're going to have some executive actions that he can lay out. But if we're really going to uh, get any change done, like we also have to realize that the Senate has to come with. Um, right now, a lot of our conversations is putting that pressure on our senators that are in alignment with us to try to end the filibuster, to actually start moving things forward without this gridlock that has been created because of that one mechanism that uh, allows a minority party to kind of like halt any progress whatsoever. And if, you know, the filibuster doesn't seem like we're ready to start analyzing what the landscape of 2022 and 2024 are going to look like. So we can identify those leaders at the, those levels. I think going back to something I mentioned earlier is we understand that the people at the top aren't part of the community oftentimes. Like we're starting to see changes in that with people like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, Jamal Bauman. Those are people who haven't held political offices. So they're not these career politicians. These are community members who have experienced what it's like to live as working class folks or under pressure. And now they're bringing our voices or our experiences to those levels. Um, I think for us, it's like Biden can only do so much. We got to give him uh, the support to get other things taken care of. I think that's a really great point. And I, I know that you brought up um, kind of like during the primary election, there was, according to my recollection, there was only one candidate, uh, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State, who literally put climate change as like his forefront issue. He was the climate change candidate. Everything was about that. And the other candidates, yeah, you know, they had like these kind of like plans, but most of it was like, yeah, we're just going to rejoin the, you know, the Paris Agreement. And kind of from there, really, you know, there wasn't really much meat uh, to their plans. So to see Biden kind of go from not really being uh, like uh, an environmental or climate change kind of guy to having like this full throttle policy now, that's incredible. And it's really, really incredible that Sunrise has been, um, you know, part of um, the building up of that. Good job. It's, uh, you know, it's it's a coalition of, of groups. Um, you know, Sunrise has our, our little space in helping envision that with like the younger generation and helping like bring these policy awareness 
issues to uh, younger folks to get involved in this. Um, and I think that is something that is like very special with Sunrise that we haven't seen in a while is a youth-led organization to help have these conversations with youth. I think when you look at like past election cycles and it's consistently, you know, proven that uh, people from 18 to 35 don't vote consistently. And I think this past election kind of showed that when you have the young folks talking to young folks, you can actually have a lot of uh, change in, in that voting mentality. Definitely the beauty of Sunrise, I would say for sure, is um, the youth-led movement. And also I think something Something that I was thinking a lot about when Danny was talking is that it's not just about the voting. It's not just about the politics of the White House, et cetera. The, you know, the reason why uh, Biden started talking about uh, millions of good jobs, you know, even without saying the word Green New Deal, the, those are the words that Sunrise has been pushing for a long time. And it's not just about um, the specific demands of, you know, getting back into the Paris agreements or reducing carbon footprint by X amount, whatever, you know, those instrumental demands, but it's also these sim the symbolic push, these big concepts of we care about our future, we feel hopeless, or climate change um, is now, and uh, climate action is also in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and racial justice and these big concepts um, that needed to become a part of uh, the everyday conversations, needed to become a, a part of the societal shift, uh, a change in narrative in order for politicians like Biden to feel so called to be make climate change a part of his agenda. Um, you know, it's not without people power. Um, and it's not just Sunrise, it's millions of people who have been working in their own organizations, in their own communities, in their own way to make sure that the people are are being heard because it, it takes millions of voices and knocking on doors for months and years for that to end up being the end result. Um, it wasn't just like, oh, then all of a sudden Biden started talking about climate. It, it didn't happen by chance. Yeah, it was, it was years of work. Um, and I suppose we owe a lot of this to the early conservationists, you know, who've been working so hard to protect some of our most precious uh, lands here in America. And now uh, their work has kind of like morphed into, hey, now we have like a whole climate uh, to kind of worry about here. Really, really important. I just want to jump into quickly into um, the Green New Deal. Let's. Uh, all right. So this oh, one, I, that I, old thing? yeah, yeah, you know that little thing. I I'm not even gonna lie. I can't. I outside of me, and I feel like a lot of listeners. You know, they've heard it, and um, they they want to know what 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 is this green boogeyman? You know, that's like. That's going to come and like tear apart the country. Break it down. I'm going to throw this to Danny, but first I want to say that when I was first getting involved in Sunrise and figuring out what the Green New Deal was, one of my first action steps was to find the YouTube video of AOC 
literally reading the document. She's really, really good at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not this scary monster. It's not this like a hundred page document. What is it? Fourteen pages that is very comprehensible, very understandable. Um, so all of you listening right now, go search on YouTube AOC Reading Green New Deal. I I'll I'll start first. I'll I'll I'll, I'll Google it. <laughs> I'll Google it first. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, an important part to get about the Green New Deal is that it's not a one-stop legislation that's going to solve everything. What the Green New Deal really lays out, it's it's a framework of uh, ideas to draft legislation towards. Um, and a lot of those ideas are uh, founded on not just, uh, you know, the environmental disasters, but also thinking about a deeper conversation of what other rights humans deserve in America. And I think we take a lot of learnings from the original New Deal um, developed by Franklin Roosevelt um, and realizing that during his time, he definitely saw that there was a need for workers to have some say in, in the way that they govern their, their lives against their you know, bosses. Um, so the second Bill of Rights is also at the very much heart of what the Green New Deal is about. And that's like ensuring that people have um, you know, an adequate job, housing, education. Um, those are human rights that actually got signed on by about 200 different countries that these are rights that we wanted to make sure that all citizens of our countries had. I want to jump in for a second because I was today years old when I learned that the Green New Deal was 14 pages. And so that means it's a framework that kind of like outlines what legislation should be aiming towards. So it's not like overly, it, it's not like this monstrosity that's being imposed onto the United States. It's literally just saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, we, we should aim for a, a better system that supports the environment and also supports human rights. Yeah, I mean, I can quickly give you a brief rundown of those fourteen pages. No, I'm so I'm, I'm so this this isn't like <laughs> this isn't there's not like dollar bills nailed on this. You know, there's there's not like this is going to cost blah blah blah. You we're allocating you know this and this. It's literally I'm, I'm this is more of a question. It it's literally just a framework of ideals that the United States should have. Yeah, I mean, it starts off by basically catching every the reader up to speed, being like, hey, just so we're all clear, climate change is a problem, and these are all the facts. Uh, this is the data of how it's a problem, right. how it's become, and how it's going to lead to like mass migration. It's going to lead to millions of deaths. Uh, uh, all right, here's, here's another question. Is it ultra-partisan? Is it, is it, you know, this is something that only Democrats could get behind or is it pretty, you know, generic, chill language? You know, it starts with laying out the problem and then it, the second half talks about the solution. And the solution is a big change. Um, it calls for a, a fundamental radical change in the system, this deregulated uh, free market capitalism that we have, that that can't go on. And so, you know, it's not a simple 
a thing that says like, yeah, and those of you who are at the top are going to keep staying at the top and um, good for you. And so, you know, the people at the top are, don't want that change. And often the people at the top are these politicians who get money from these corporations um, who want to stay business as usual. And so it's very easy for them to keep doing what they've been doing, use their money and say, yeah, the Green New Deal are those liberal leftists who just want us all to have a windmill in each of our backyards and like snort some greens. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, it, it's I'm going very... to mute myself now until I can laugh as I fully want to. Yeah, it's very easy to uh, say like the Green New Deal is this scary green monster. Um, and I think that's why a part of the challenge or part of what AOC and Sunrise and et cetera have been doing is just explaining like, no, the Green New Deal is just saying what needs to happen, but what needs to happen is fundamental radical change, which is why it's scary to the people who don't want that change. I think I'm blown away that it's 14 pages. I'm blown away that uh, <laughs> more Republicans couldn't admit that these are real things, uh, especially if the initial part of it is just kind of like a breakdown of what's happening. Just. I mean, you can just have eyes. You don't even have to be like a rocket scientist or, you know, whatever. You can just see that, yeah, something's really out of whack here. We should admit that, not be in denial, and, and yeah, let's set up a framework of ideas how we can address that. When you're talking to, to voters or folks out in the communities and they're like, oh, no, this isn't real, what do you tell them? What, like, what are those conversations like? Uh, those conversations tend to be unique. <laughs> unique is a really great word. <laughs> I think oftentimes people get caught up in trying to prove the point um, and rather than try to figure out like where are the lapses of knowledge that the other person has that is preventing them to like realize what's going on. I think that's some of the conversation that like Sunrise is starting to really get at with a lot of our members is not trying to win arguments, but like trying to get at the root cause of why people don't believe these things just yet. So we can kind of identify how to bring them into the conversation. Like I think one of the issues that we have as a society with the current system is that it has become a two-sided system um, because we only have two viable parties that can actually have conversations at, at, at this level. So all of a sudden no, no longer becomes an issue of like, how do we compromise? It's like, no, if we pass these things, that side's gonna win. And we don't want that side to win. We need them to win. We need our side to win. So we need to convince our people that their side is always wrong. I think because we have that kind of mentality, I think it's gonna take, and we're starting to see that, that the two party system has to kind of be broken up a little bit. We're starting to see that a little bit in the Republican side where, you know, there are some people who are like very much like, what just happened these last four years? Like our, our whole base has gone to the extreme of believing these conspiracy theories and believing that our president is gonna retake the country on March 4th and- Yeah, it's coming up. Are you guys, are you guys ready for inauguration number two? Uh, I'm, I don't know how prepared you could be for another inauguration, especially yeah. if it's 
so so soon but uh here we go we got another one apparently coming up another one on its way on its way i wonder who's gonna sing out of that one i think j-lo and lady gaga will be there fingers crossed fingers crossed <laughs> um but yeah no it's 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 it is crazy that um i don't know the the voters are especially from the, the republican party they've gone into this i don't know they've been warped into believing such in, in incredible things and it's it's scary not just for you know you think about the country yeah but what about their safety um, climate change isn't just hitting Democrats hard it's it's going to hit the nation hard and it's going to hit the world hard uh, so it literally needs to be all hands on deck not just democratic hands on deck you, you're very much right and then I think Kind of like going back to what happened last week in Texas, is that the wake up call that Texas GOP voters need to realize that like our representatives don't have our, our best interests in mind? Like yeah. when you have a Texas mayor saying that like any relief would be like handouts and we don't do yeah. handouts. It's like, but no, I, I totally agree. When I read that headline, um, that there was a Texas mayor against any type of like state help what is our government for if not to like preserve life and you know like probably at the most base level of government what is it for i also just want to throw out the green new deal did not cause this problem (laughs) as the government leaders have been saying because let me just say the green new deal does not exist in texas so it this actually would not have happened if the green new deal i think this is actually a really uh interesting point because i've been seeing a lot of kind of like headlines pop up that i guess the lack of a response from the texas state government is being pinned on aoc and Democrats are the reason that, you know, kind of this breakdown, it, like, it happened, which is, it's, we, what, what? <laughs> like, what yeah, it's, that's just false. It, I mean, it's because of the power grid, etc. in Texas is privatized. That's, that's what happened. It, again, it's. With very little regulation. Right. Yeah. A small group of people trying to profit over the everyday folks who don't have power. And this is this Texas storm that happened last week is on top of what we seen in what we saw in Texas last year with the hurricanes and the extensive flooding uh, in Houston. It's 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 bizarre, you know, how you know catastrophic does it have to get before folks kind of wake up to this? Okay, in an effort to wrap this up, <laughs> what makes you hopeful about the future? I think there are lots of things to be hopeful for. At the same time, there are a lot of things to feel hopeless about, but being in community with others who believe in the fight has led me to constantly be filled with hope. And I think the fact that there are so many people who are willing to fight, who are willing to put in their extra hours, who are willing to volunteer, who are willing to start conversations and stand up to these oppressive systems. Um, that's what's, what gives me hope and seeing other people do it makes me want to continue and do it 
to do it as well. I do believe that radical change can happen. Um, and it makes me hopeful to see that other people believe that too. All it takes is for a lot of people to believe it together um, because we have the numbers. There's more of us and that gives me hope. Yeah, I think for me, just seeing that there is a community of young uh, folks who are very much aware of the issues at hand and are ready to throw in into this fight. You know, I'm, I'm on the older side of the Sunrise Movement. Like our, our movement is very much geared to youth and youth being 35 and younger. I'm about a year or two from being retired from the Sunrise Movement. So um, <laughs> that's I, it, uh, me, same. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> but you know, being being in in cohort and community with folks who are at times it can be like half my age, if not less. Like I've seen uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers get uh, involved into this fight and like mobilizing their high school into uh, climate actions and climate conversations and racial justice conversations. Um, you know, those are the things that. As, as we continue having this dialogue, it's, it's gonna normalize the, the issue and make sure that um, we are consistently talking towards uh, the solutions. So I'm very hopeful that this new generation is very much coming up in a time that is very uncertain, but because of this uncertainty, they're throwing their energy into getting the solutions in place. I feel like my generation kind of didn't hold that as much, um, given the circumstances that we ha had, you know, we grew up during uh, the Iraq war and the economic recession. And yet like it would, those things didn't move us to do enough. And now this is actually moving things uh, for people. So I'm very hopeful that this new generation's really gonna like shake things up in the next 20 to 30 years. I was gonna say that would be the thing that makes me hopeful as well. Um, so Daniel, maybe you, you touch on that. And one last thing, what's one thing that any listener can do to help in the fight against climate change? Well, listener, I'm an average listener. You know, Danny's an average listener. We're just, we're all average Joes here. And so the thinking like, oh, this person knows more than me, or I couldn't possibly do X, Y, Z, or I don't, what's organizing, whatever. That was me like, two days ago, two months ago, two years ago. So really all you have to do is care. And if you're listening to this, you probably already care. Um, so that's step one. And step two is look up Sunrise Movement, join a hub if you're, you identify as a, as a young person open up Instagram. People are talking about it. Uh, start by doing your own research, reading a book that um, calls to you. A book that I started with was um, This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. Um, there's also uh, Sunrise Movement has a book called Winning the Green New Deal that I personally really loved. It's that first step and then everything else just becomes uh, taking the next step after and the next step after. There's no big leap. There's no barrier. It's just starting. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll add on to that is, you know, the Sunrise Movement is very much welcoming, even if you are at the 35 and over, like, we love 
our allies who are older, who have experienced things um, already. And we, we build coalition and power by making sure that we have um, those partnerships in place. And to Andrea's point, there's 300 different hubs throughout the country. And if there's one that isn't close to you, we have the resources to help you start your own hub in your own city. But all it takes is, you know, just going on to the Sunrise Movement website, uh, finding your local hub or your uh, area of interest. And one of the things that Sunrise is very good at is, you know, we, we want to make sure that people have the opportunity to give what they're best at. Um, you know, we don't put try to put people into like, um, you are going to volunteer for this exact thing. And this is the only thing you're going to do. Like, we want to make sure people can give what they can give genuinely themselves. Yeah. And I also just want to throw out that even talking about it with your friends, your roommates, your parents, whoever is on the street, <laughs> starting a conversation of like, hey, did you, do you know that the Green New Deal is 14 pages? Like that's one thing that you could do that will all like just in that conversation makes change. Um, so if the idea of joining a hub or starting a hub or getting on the bike in that way sounds like too big of a first step, there are smaller steps that may, are just as impactful. Just being aware that this is an issue that we should uh, engage in and, and we should be, you know, up to speed about. I think that would be a, first good, a good first step as well. Andrea, Danny, thank you guys so much. I really, really appreciate it. This was um, the most exhilarating climate change conversation I've ever had. Uh, <laughs> so I thank you guys both. And thanks for coming on the Delve. Thank you so much. We feel so grateful to be in this space with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us and uh, for the thought-provoking questions. Additionally, after our interview on Sunday, the Dell will be hosting a Q&A with the Sunrise Movement on Instagram Live. Join us on March 18th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern to have all of your climate change questions answered. You can find more information about this event on our Facebook and Instagram, The Delve Podcast. We hope you'll join us.